Hey team, it's Matt Drinkon here. And you might have heard, my brand new book releases on Amazon on March 8th. It's been a labor of love that I think can really help you navigate some of the challenges you're experiencing in your own life. I go over toxic positivity and how to think you're in it for everyone else. In reality, you're in it for yourself. And I express that through this entire book and help learn from our own mistakes and how to turn the lens on ourselves and ask good questions. So go to Amazon on March 8th and you can get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. That's it for me. Let's get into today's episode. Welcome back, friends, to another episode of the Eternal Optimist Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Drinkon, and I am here with my new friend, Mr. Zachary Gray. He goes by Zach, and today we're gonna have a great conversation. We're gonna talk about hard stuff that has happened in his world, what he's learned from it, and then what he's putting forth in the world now. And to kick things off, I'm gonna ask Zach, if you could, if you had to give us three bullet points, it's the context that's important that we might need to know as we get started in our discussion, what are three things that our audience should know about you? Feel free to be serious or whatever, your style. Thank you so much for having me on today, Matt. I hope that my experiences and the things that I've gone through in my life can help be impactful and inspiring to some of your listeners. And I hope that my story may motivate some people, may make them feel they're able to persevere and be resilient and continue to carry on in an impactful way that will ultimately yield positive change for themselves as well as hopefully others in their lives. Wow. Awesome. I'm already on the edge of my seat, my friend. You hit a lot of my favorite words, persevere and resilience and inspire and awesome. So let's start off with something simple. Where are you coming from today? Where do you live? So I live in Framingham, Massachusetts. I grew up in central Massachusetts. I know that earlier you had just hit on that. What are the three bullet points that are worthwhile or worthy to note or bring up to the listeners here today? And I think that where I would effectively start is by sharing some of my childhood experiences and how those have impacted me personally and helped me become the best version of myself. Where I would start is I grew up in a house with a single income household where my dad was a sole provider. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. We were on food stamps for a pretty decent part of my childhood. I think that my dad was probably putting in close to 70-hour weeks, working six days a week, leaving at five in the morning, coming home around 7 p.m. most days. And I think that was really motivating for me to see. And that was set the standard for me in terms of what was expected from a work ethic standpoint. Neither of my parents went to college. Nobody in my family had ever been to college. A little bit of background about me in general. I think the second bullet point would be when I was a senior in high school, my parents filed for bankruptcy and basically effectively told me two weeks before I was supposed to commit to college, I was set to graduate in like the top 10 to 15% of my class. I was high performing academically. I got into all the colleges that I applied to and I was set to make a decision on where I was going to go to college. And my parents came up to me and said, for that college thing, we can't really help you with that. Good luck. And I made the executive decision at that time 
stopped playing sports, quit my baseball legion team in May immediately. I took on two full-time jobs. I worked 80 hours a week from May to September. My objective was to pay for my freshman year of college without incurring any debt. I walked in my first day of my freshman year. I slapped a cashier's check on the table and I said, I hope this is good for the first two semesters. And I went on my merry way. I worked full-time my whole entire freshman year while I was taking classes. And I think that was the jumping off point for me where I was able to be the first person in my family to go to college while effectively accumulating enough money to support my freshman year by working two full-time jobs. After I got done with my freshman year, I decided... Pause for one second, Zach. In that freshman year, you sat the cashier's check down and paid for it. So massive respect to you, my friend, for working all that summer to earn that. So that was a big transition yeah. to do that. What jobs did you have and what kind of hours were you working? If you're working 70 or 80 hours, two full-timers, what was your regular day or week like? I would wake up really early in the morning. I would start work at normally like 4.30 or 5 o'clock <laughs> at Dunkin' Donuts. I was working like 40 hours a week at Dunkin' okay. Donuts. I'd get done around 2 o'clock. I'd get done... I would go home and eat lunch. I'd go ahead and have an hour and a half workout around three o'clock. There was two different things that I was doing. I would call it like somewhere between exterior maintenance of properties and landscaping effectively. And I was running events at a company that was a contact of my network that I was running events where effectively I was a tournament director for charity Texas Hold'em tournaments. And I would be the dealer at the events as well as facilitating and running the entire event. And I would normally do from 3 or 4 p.m. to like 9 to 11 p.m. on average. Okay, so you really were living that work ethic. That was the standard and you were living it and you did whatever it took and thank you. Please continue. I got done with my freshman year. I said that was really not that fun. I was able to navigate it while not incurring any debt and I think that was really impactful for me and important for me because of my parents having just filed for bankruptcy. I was not too privy on acquiring debt. At that time, I was at a crossroads yeah. where I said, I'm going to have to go do this dance all over again this summer or I'm going to have to take on debt. And what I ended up doing instead was I actually ended up enlisting in the military. I walked into a recruiter's office on a Monday. I enlisted on Friday. I went to boot camp three months later. I was gone for six months, went to boot camp and secondary training. And then I proceeded to come back and I finished my collegiate experience, three and a half years worth of academic in three years. So I graduated on time. And the entire time in which I was going to school, I was effectively getting paid somewhere between 10 and 15K a year to go to school from reimbursement of financial aid as well as military stipends. So I ended up graduating college with close to 40K in savings, no debt, and that synopsis of my younger years. And then in terms of where I am now, it makes me curious for a second, Zach, because you bucked the trend. You were the first one in your family to go to college and your relationship with money and or debt was one that you had a crutch or you had an excuse you could make that I didn't know any different and something in you caused you to do it yeah. differently. All right. So I know you're setting the stage for where we are now, but I'm curious what your relationship was with money and with debt through your teenage years to college to this point, because you've got 40K in savings and you came from a place where it was bankrupt. And I'm not trying to poop on family or parents because you've learned some great stuff. But what was your relationship like with money 
growing up and into this place where now you have 40,000 savings when you graduate? Yeah, I was always extremely frugal. It was always about creating security because I was operating from a place of seeing my parents never have financial stability or financial security. I was operating from a place of money always being a barrier. I felt like I would try to control as many variables as possible to create favorable outcomes. And I think that transitioned into my adulthood where my first four to five years of my professional life, I lived in a three bedroom apartment. I rented a room with random roommates. I was paying $500 a month. I did that for about five years. I was able to save 50 to 60% of my annually. I didn't even have a TV. I didn't even have blinds on my windows. So in that five year timetable, I ended up shifting my life, becoming an entrepreneur. I opened my own gym, now a strength and conditioning facility located in kind of a high net worth earning space in Boston submarket called Nita, Massachusetts. The gym is called Gray's Anatomy. I've basically taken my proceeds from running my own gym operation and utilized the proceeds that I have earned from my gym operation to get into multifamily buy and hold real estate investing. And over the last two and a half, I've managed to go from a single townhouse to roughly about 180 units. Wow. Well, first of all, congratulations. You had every reason possible crutch or excuse to not do what you just described and you still figured out a way. And now that you've done this and you've gotten to a place where you had this degree of success in a couple of businesses and it continues to expand. What are some of the lessons that you can share with us and reflect on? We'll start with Gray's Anatomy. What were the first things that you learned about running a business in Gray's Anatomy you can share with us? Yeah, I think there's two things. One, regardless of age demographic, are simply not willing to wake up at four in the morning, begin their day, put in a day's worth of work and work into five or six days a week to outpace their peers. And I think that if you simply are willing to wake up earlier than others, put in more hours longer and more frequently than you're destined for success by default, that's one. I think that my number one prerogative from a very early age was to, to accumulate enough savings to be able to buy a multifamily property in which I could house myself for free by renting out the units and then living in it for free. You effectively eliminate your largest expense, which is rent or mortgage payment. And I think that in Massachusetts, the average rent is somewhere between two grand and twenty five hundred a month. What person would not want a twenty four to thirty thousand dollar a year raise? Because effectively, that's what that is. If you're living for free in a house and you have a place to live and you don't have to make that payment. So I think that sets you up on just this exponential runway for financial success to be able to continue to facilitate future moves. And I think that was a really impactful piece for me. It makes me wonder, was that the target to get to that place where you gave yourself that raise from when you opened the business or from when you got out of college? When did this idea, when did that start to come to fruition in your mind? I think that my main focus was that when I started my own business, my number one prerogative was to mitigate my risks. And so my number one risk was yeah. my business will never be successful if I have other financial constraints that limit my ability to invest in my business. And so if I can continue to reinvest money into my business to scale my business, I will be more successful and I can invest more money in my business if I don't have to focus on monthly expenses that limit my ability to do so. And I think being able to maximize reinvesting in my business, scaling my business, taking more risk because I didn't have monthly expenses that I had to be concerned about, it allowed for me to be more creative, create more opportunity, take more risks. And I think it transpired into having success. And I think simultaneously, the other reason as to why I did this was we were operating in an environment in which the federal government was basically printing money 
money hand over fist in order to sustain our existing economic structure during COVID-19. And the way that I looked at it is if, if the federal government is printing money in excess quantity, that is going to correspond to asset prices rapidly appreciating. And basically, it was a race to acquire as many assets in a short period of time as possible, because if you're not holding assets while the government is printing money, you're getting left behind and you're never going to be able to make up that ground. Spoken like someone who had a plan, they got into it. And I love that you have this defense but behind you, like I got to mitigate the risk. And at the same time, if I have a chance to play offense right now and go and do it, this is the time. And so you started the business, you're running Gray's Anatomy, you're mitigating your risk by leveling up, by removing the expenses so you can reinvest back in the business. So now you went from one property to 180 units. What happens now that we're maybe a little bit past that market low in the printing? Maybe they're still printing. I I think actually they are still printing. So what's the next part of the vision that happens for you next? Yeah, the way that I look at it is me and my immediate investment partner, we do all of our deals together. I think that we have proven our track record significantly over the last two to three years. And I think a lot of prominent investors over the last year and a half or so realized that the Fed was now going to rapidly increase rates over that time frame. And I think it's went from relatively close to three and a half percent all the way up to somewhere around eight and a half percent. I think that a lot of investors said, hold my beer. I'm going to go chill and hang on the beach for a year and a half. Come find me when things come back down to earth. And I think that we looked at that as an opportunity. I think a lot of those people weren't interested in trying to find deals because with rates at really high in the last 40 to 50 years, I think that they looked at it and said, there's not really much room for us to go find deals right now. And I think the way that we looked at it, anything that you can find as a deal right now that makes sense, when you drop rates down from seven and a half, seven, eight percent down to five or five and a half percent, which is inevitable, that will happen at some point. We're not going to have seven to eight percent interest rates for the rest of our lives. I think all of those deals that you're finding that make sense at eight percent or seven percent are going to be home runs at five percent. And I think to that point, I looked at the environment that was 7 to 8% interest rates and said, as a buyer, you have all the leverage. You have the ability to negotiate lower prices. You have the ability to negotiate seller credits. You have the ability to negotiate more advantageous terms with banks because there's not as much volume. There's not as many refinances. There's so many variables that work in your favor that allow maximize your circumstance and get properties in your possession during a time in which rates are at all-time highs. And I think we're heading into right now, which the Fed has already confirmed, that over the next 12 to 18-month timeframe, that there's going to be multiple cuts in 2024 heading into 2025. Do you see those rate cuts happen? I think that those deals that we bought are going to be even more high-performing. I think that you're going to see, because debt costs are going to become cheaper, you're going to see rapid price appreciation or asset appreciation again. And I think that Mm -hmm. anything that you bought at 7 to 8% is not only going to see equity gains in the form of appreciation, but also your cash on cash returns are going to be much stronger because your debt cost is going to go down. Wow. So the deals that are good or that could be tenable now at 7 to 8%, when the rates go down, it's going to be amazing. We look at it and we're trying to acquire as much stuff as fast as possible right now because on the horizon is a whole bunch of rate cuts and you're effectively just walking into gains. I love the way you've just given us a schooling on this process and how you did it. So there's credibility on everything that you've just said. And so what is it that you might be able to offer or share with the listeners in terms of, do you have a company that we might invest in or 
what is it that we might do to gain some of this knowledge? Because it sounds attractive, but you're speaking a language most of us don't speak. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) So I'd be happy to talk to anybody who would be interested in learning more real estate in general, real estate investing. I actually am currently running a mentorship group for people who are interested in getting into real estate investing or people who are looking to scale their existing portfolio and how to do that feasibly by developing systems to be able to more volume of our deals. We target to provide somewhere between an 8 to 10% cash on cash return for our investors. And we aim to be able to return 60 to 70% of their startup capital in two years or so. So the way that we look at it is most of our investors are getting 60 to 70% of their startup capital back. They're retaining their ownership stake while they only have 30 cents on the dollar in the entire time in which that process is occurring. They're earning 8 to 10% of their money, which for most people is a win. I think that two other big that can be value add for us from like an investor standpoint is because of the way that we operate our deals, people who, I'm happy to go into more detail about this, but the returns that you're garnering at 8 to 10%, you have effectively aren't paying taxes on the 8 to 10% return. So it's really more like earning close to 11% from a return standpoint. I think one of the other things that I will mention is that due to the way that we depreciate our properties, most of our investors not only don't pay taxes on the returns they're receiving, they also have carryover losses. And those carryover losses can be really impactful for people who either A, own and run their own businesses as entrepreneurs, because they can offset passive earnings that you gain from running your own business as an entrepreneur. I think that one of the other avenues is that if you own, let's say you're a a standard corporate W-2 earner and you have company stock uh, or stock options, when you liquidate stock options, you incur a massive gain and you have to pay taxes on those gains. The losses from investing in our deals allow for you to use the losses to offset the gains that you incurred from selling your company stock. And so we have a lot of people who have our corporate earners or corporate W-2 you people that are in the tech space or in software sales or things like that, where they'll come and invest money with us so that they can actually sell their shares, have access to their money. And then the deals that they're investing in with us will make it so they don't have to pay taxes on their sales stock. That sounds nice. And I don't quite understand everything about it. So I would like to go a little more granular into it. Because I think what you're sharing is that if we invest with you, there's some type of setup or structure where it's a debt position so that if it's that, we can carry a loss instead of having to take the gain. And I don't even understand what I'm talking about right now. I've read about it. So please help us, the layperson, understand. So the most simplistic way to think about it is like all buildings that exist, there's many components of a building. There's flooring, there's paint, there's appliances, there's cabinets, there's a roof. Everything has a lifespan and the lifespan for a roof might be 15 to 20 years. The lifespan for paint might be two to three years. So the idea is what you do is there's something that's called a cost segregation analysis, which you're bringing a professional who comes into the property and they answer analyze every single component of the property. They provide the lifespan of that component. And then what they do is that they depreciate that component over the lifespan of the component. So they say paint lasts three years, flooring lasts five years, roofs last 15 years. So every year you take one third or one fifth 
or 115 of that item. Well, the standard is that the government has determined that everything in a building needs to be renovated or attended to. So the standard is that most people who own property get to claim 127th of the building value as a loss every year. When you do this analysis instead, you're not taking 127th, you're actually expediting the loss. It is much, much more than 127th. And habitually, it corresponds to one-fifth of the property value. So effectively, you're almost getting five years worth of depreciation losses upon acquisition. So what this corresponds to is I'm going to give a hypothetical scenario. Let's say for round numbers, you had a building that was worth a million dollars. Let's say rather than 127th, let's divide it. Let's say it's 30 years. So in a 30 year time horizon, 130th is going to equate to a $33,000 loss per year. So if you were operating with the standard model, you're going to get 130th, which is a $33,000 loss. And you would claim that as a loss on your taxes. Well, if you do a cost segregation analysis, you can offset $33,000 of earnings. So what are the returns that you're garnering on the deal? They might be 10,000, 15,000, 20,000. Great, we'll wipe those out. And then you're gonna have 180 to go play with that can offset stock sales, that can offset your business earnings. And this is an extremely advantageous avenue for folks who are entrepreneurs or for people who work W-2 jobs who have stock positions. Excellent. So the advantage investing in in something like this or investing in freedom management is that if we are entrepreneurs or if we are W-2, we have stock gains that we want to offset, then this can help us in W-2. It can help us as an entrepreneur. In this exact example, if our end of the year, let's just say our profit is less than 200,000, it's 180K lost over there, we could offset some of that and not have to pay as much tax on our profit at the end of the year. Yeah. And then I think the last piece is let's say that you're neither of those folks. Let's say you don't have stock options. Let's say you're not an entrepreneur. What I would say is you go invest your money in the stock market and normally you're going to buy index funds and an index fund earns six to 8% per year on average over the last 20 to 30 years. So you're earning six to 8% of your money. But when you take it out, you got to pay capital gains tax on it. So you're sacrificing 20%. So it's really like earning 4.8% or earning 6.4%. So if you're earning four and a half in the stock market after you pay capital gains tax, that's the standard. Well, for us in our deals, we're paying eight to 10% cash on cash checks in the mail, but you're also not paying taxes on it. So now that's the equivalent of 11 to 14% versus four and a half to six and a half. You're looking at two and a half to three times the returns. So if somebody said to you, hey, I can return two to three times your money versus the stock market, who wouldn't want that? And I think that the other piece that's not being considered here is we have it that's void of the tax savings relative to the depreciation. And that's void of property appreciation over time. So you're getting two to three X your returns in the stock market in the mail. You're getting losses to offset stock sales or earnings, and you're getting access to the price appreciation of the building and the asset. So why would I not do that? First of all, I'd want to trust the person. So I'd go and look at the people that own the company and I'd see what have they done. And of course, you've just shared your story. And so we know the work ethic is there and we know that you have a relationship with money and debt. And we know you have a relationship with mitigating risk, all right? So you got to check the people out first. And then second, just getting comfortable with the idea of working with concepts we don't quite understand. So how do you help us get comfortable with that? Because we can listen to it now and get excited, but how do we take the next step to really start to get comfortable and make that first investment get off the bench? Yeah, so what I would say is that for us, 
we pump out a monthly newsletter in which we talk about all the existing projects that we're doing. So we have people who are invested in two or three of our projects, and they're getting monthly updates on those projects to hear about what they're doing. What's our vacancy rate on the property? Did we receive all the rents? Did we have any unforeseen maintenance issues? So these people are getting monthly updates as to how what the performance is, where their money is vested. So I think that's kind of an important component. And then I think that anytime that we're putting together a deal, I think that for smaller deals, we will actually meet with investors on -on one-on-one calls and then walk through the process to talk about the deal in in particular. And in the event that we're doing larger deals where where we're going to be raising a, a fair amount of capital, we'll actually put together a PowerPoint presentation and then we'll host a webinar that you can either sit in on and listen to the webinar as and then at the end we take a like a basically like a 30 minute Q&A, basically like a 30 minute Q&A from all the people who are there. And we also record the webinar and then we send it out to our entire investor network. So if people weren't able to attend the webinar itself, they actually have the means to be able to watch it as well as hear other people's questions and, and listen to it on their own time. And this can be whether you are prepared and ready to take action in investing. This can be a tool to help assist in making you feel comfortable, but also it can be a learning tool for people who actually may be intrigued, but aren't ready to do, you know, ready to take that step yet. Okay, so two follow-ups. One is how do we get on the monthly newsletter mailing list so we can start to get involved and learn from you? So that's first is how do we get the newsletter? So what I would say is it's actually in my bio on my Instagram. So I think the best course of action would be follow me on Instagram and then you can join my newsletter and then you can get monthly updates as to all the projects that we're doing as well as you'll get projects that we are acquiring looking to raise money for. My Instagram is at the 1099 mindset. Again, my name is Zach Gray. And right in the bio, you can join. And my name is Zach Gray in the newsletter and you can check it out. And hopefully we can help some people make some money. Fantastic. I'm on it right now. I'm looking over here at uh, Zach on the Instagram right now. And we can see it's got on here, multifamily real estate investor, 179 units owned under agreement. Massachusetts and South Carolina. You're down here in the Carolinas too. Good. That's not too far from me. Good. 24 million in assets under management so far. Wow. And that was not that way a few short years ago. That's right. (laughs) And now we're building, we're growing, gym owner and syndicator. And so how do I get to the newsletter? Is it the uh, link here? Just click the link. Yep, you can click the link and it will allow for you to join the newsletter. Yeah, this is very simple to do. So I'm gonna invite everyone to go and do this. It's just another way to learn more about what Zach's talking about. Because this is a a world, this investing and being a, whether you're an investor passively in real estate, uh, you get involved with syndication like Zach's. This is something that we need an education on and we need to be doing, my friends out there. Money sitting in the bank is money losing value. So to have a way to go out there and learn from someone who has put in the sweat equity and is willing to teach you, what kind of minimum investments are we talking about here, Zach? So it depends on the deal in particular, but normally it can be anywhere from 25 to 75K on average. That's sort of the standard minimum. Okay, got it. So that's a place to start. That's the ballpark we're in. So here's my invitation to the audience. I'll ask Zach what his mind is to go to Zach on Instagram at the 1099 mindset. It's really easy to find. And you see that he has facial hair. He's got a big beard. So don't be intimidated if you don't have facial hair like me, because you all know I don't have any. But it's very easy to talk to. And he's got the experience to do it. So I encourage you to go and check it out here on Instagram at the 1099 mindset. Get on the newsletter and have a conversation with Zach, because this is stuff that it may sound exciting 
and cool, but if you don't do anything, then nothing is going to happen. So go and follow and connect with them and then see how that might be able to lead you to learn and get that first step in the door. And like Zach, who didn't have any real estate properties at all, has gone because he's learned the system and now he's a syndicator. He has learned how to do this. What I would say is, I don't know exactly the stat is, but it's something along the lines of 90% of millionaires make their first million through real estate. And so I know it's something in the ballpark of that, but I think that what it comes down to is there are people who own real estate and those are the people who effectively become really affluent and rich over time. And there are people who choose not to own real estate. And I think that it becomes really challenging to reach the same threshold financially without having owned real estate. Well said, my friend. Zach, I appreciate what you've had to share with us today. So we know where to follow you. We're going to connect with you here. And the main place is the Instagram. Is there a freedom management website? You may have said that. I did not catch it because I was... On that mailing list, you can access right on our website and you can check it out. In general, what I would say is that you can peruse around, join the mailing list. I think the other thing too is you're welcome to DM me on Instagram as well. If you want to connect, if you want to talk in more detail, I'm also happy to discuss the possibility for people maybe at those sort of beginning stages of wanting to get involved in real estate, but don't really know how. Again, happy to discuss that as well and point in the right direction. But yeah, the thought is that you need a lot of money to get started in your journey. And I think that one of the things that I would say is that if you live in other parts of the US and other states aside from Massachusetts, there's multifamily properties in many states that are available for somewhere between 150, 200, 250K. And you're looking at, in most circumstances, you're able to put three to three and a half percent down on a property in the event that you're going to be an owner occupant and you're going to live in that property. So you could be in a situation where you need six to $10,000 to get involved. And that's less than a car for most people. So I think in the grand scheme of things, I think that so many people look at it and they think that it's option. But I think that really what it comes down to is I think everybody has the ability to get involved. I think if they're willing to live in the property. And again, I think if you're willing to live in the property, you mitigate your biggest expense. And I think it just trampolines you into this stratosphere of being able to perpetually make more moves. And I think that is going to have profound effects for not only for you, but your entire family and your kids and the people that come after you. This is a kind of a great teaser to the masterclass that is Zach and what he's going to teach you when you join this or when you get the newsletter and connect. So it sounds good. I just signed up, everyone, because I'm always looking to learn from people who do exactly what Zach is doing. Real estate syndication is on the rise, but some people right now are not taking that plunge because they don't understand it or they feel that it's just insurmountable capital number I have to have. And it really can be simple. I just got to take the first step. Zach, I'd love to ask you a few questions as we get near the end here. In the lightning round, let's just talk books for a second. If there is a book or a resource, maybe you can share between one and three of them that have had a major impact on you in your life journey, what might be one to three resources that have had an impact on you? Actually, for the last three years, my goal was to read between 12 and 25 books a year for the last three years. And I don't think it's coincidence that in the last three years, I have made the largest strides in personal growth. I have made the 
largest strides in terms of financial independence, financial growth. Mm-hmm. I think I have made the largest strides in relationship building with others, networking, connecting, building friendships, relationships, business relationships. I think those two things are very related. It doesn't matter what the content is. What matters is there are two types of people in this world. And I think that you have to decide which one you want to be. I think that there is the person who wakes up every single day in a relentless effort for self-improvement. And I think that there are people who wake up every single day and are going through the motions and are happy to be complacent. And I think that if you're intentional about self-improvement, and it can be viewed in many ways, it could be improving your mental health. It could be improving your physical health. It can be improving Mm -hmm. your social relationships. It could be improving your financial literacy. It could be improving your knowledge on nutrition. It could be improving your knowledge on learning a skill. There's so many ways in which you can improve. And I think that what it comes down to is I'm going to kind of hit on the book piece. A book that was really impactful to me in my early teen years is a book called The Alchemist. And it's actually, it's more of like a fairy tale book than it is like this like nonfiction, like real kind of info heavy content and seeking ultimate fulfillment, determining what it is that fills up your cup and what makes you happy intrinsically. And what are you put on this planet to do and want to do? And I think that is where you should start when it comes to self-improvement, because there's nothing that's going to motivate you more to improve than doing something that you intrinsically love. And I think that was a huge eye opener for me. I went to school for finance and I was passionate about not being in debt. But I also was extremely passionate about taking care of myself physically, mentally, and optimizing my health through what I feed myself in nutrition. And what I would say is that I actually graduated with a finance degree and then became a personal trainer as my profession. But this is where I've ended up because I was relentlessly curious about how to become the best coach I could possibly become. And I, I think that what it comes down to is you don't have to go to college to get a four-year degree to succeed. You have to wake up every day and be relentlessly curious about something that you're passionate about and you will achieve success if you do that. And so that's for me, the first book is The Alchemist. The second book for me is a book at a really, really important inflection point of my entire life. I grew up in an environment of scarcity. And so I operated from a mindset, preserve, hoard, be mindful, frugal, conserve resources. And I operated from that standpoint to grow and create favorable outcomes for myself. And the biggest inflection point in life is you reach a point in which you cannot grow further without depending on other people. And when that moment hits, you have to alter your way of thinking from scarcity mindset. And the only way is to take all the people that you depend on in your cohort that show up to grind for you, to go to bat for you every day. And you got to incentivize those people to care about the outcomes that you care about. And now what you're doing is you're giving up resources to get those people to row the boat in the same direction as you. And I think that is operating from you understanding you're going to get a lot farther with 10, 15, 20, 30 people rowing the boat in the same direction rather than you just simply rowing faster. So you have to be willing to give resources in order for you to continue to gain resources. It's not about owning the whole pie. It's about making the pie bigger. And that book, Go Giver, for me was it, it, it was like I read that book and I was like, my possibilities are limitless.
Zach, that was an amazing answer. Not only the lessons from the Go-Giver, but the idea that if you think you can get there on your own just by getting stronger, tougher, bigger, row faster, how about the people that don't have to do all of that? Instead, they enlist others, they serve others, and they bring them onto their team. It was such a great example. And it illustrates to our listeners that Zach knows what he's talking about, because that's not something that people who are in that position of scarcity, who are doing it all themselves, they don't get that. They don't talk that way. Well, and then I think that once you're in a position where you're growing your operation, I think the biggest thing is like now you have all these people who you depend on and your number one detriment to you continuing to strive and prosper is having to rehire, to retrain, to reacclimate because you can't retain talent and you can't retain talent if you're trying to keep the whole pie. That is brilliant. And I'm going to go to the next question. If you are a music man in any way, shape, or form, what type of song or genre or artist fills up your bucket and inspires you? So I'm a huge music person. My wife and I probably go to listen to live music at least once to twice a week on average. I love acoustic, anything acoustic in general. I'm about it. I like alt rock from like the early 2000s, like Goo Goo Dolls, John Mayer, Third Eye Blind, that kind of thing. I'm down for like classic rock, Steve Miller band, stuff like The Stones, Journey. But I'm actually a massive T-Swift fan. And my wife and I went to the opening show at Glendale, Arizona this past year. I bought that for her for Christmas. And I think that when I'm working out, I like hip hop stuff. I like Drake, Kanye West. I like Joyner Lucas. I like Eminem. I can get into some more punk stuff. I'm a big Linkin Park guy. But then what really intrinsically is my baseline, like hits home for me. I'm the military guy. So you already know the answer is country music, Morgan Wallen. That's my man. I'm a big country music guy. Awesome. Man, I should have opened today asking you about music. Man, you just lit up. And you're talking about Taylor Swift over here, and I'm thinking about like football from recently, whatnot. But when I took my kids to school every day, like about three or four years ago, we listened to Welcome to New York and Shake It Off like every morning on the drive. They loved it. So it's super cool. Time for one last question. And the wrap-up question, and you have the last word, Zach. Uh, you're on the Eternal Optimist podcast. And when I say the words Eternal Optimist, what does that mean to you? I actually, in my gym two days ago, we have a quote board every week where we update the quote. And the quote that I wrote on the board, never underestimate how far you can go by simply believing in yourself. And I think this again comes down to what fills up your cup. How early are you willing to wake up? How much effort are you willing to put in? What time do you go to stop working? Are you focused on relentlessly trying to self-improve? And I think that if you listen to podcasts, read books, aspire to get into circles where people know more things than you in a specific topic. I think that it is inevitable that you will persevere. I think it's inevitable that you will prosper. And I think, again, taking that optimist mindset translates into exponential growth. And I think that ultimately in this life, we're all after trying to be better people, be better for our families. And I think that starts with you. you.